Hi everyone, this is Red Sox historian Gordon Eads welcoming you to The View from the Monster Seats, a historian's perspective. It's a podcast devoted to topics related to the history of one of America's enduring sports franchises. Batting fourth, one of the greatest clutch hitters of all time, entering the final season of his fabulous career, our beloved Big Poppy, designated hitter number 34, David Ortiz. This season's edition of the podcast will be dedicated to the final year of David Ortiz's remarkable career in a Red Sox uniform. We look at Ortiz, we know he's non-tendered. He hasn't been picked up after the first couple weeks. He's the, by far and away, the best player in the Dominican that year. He is a rock star and he has such a big heart. You will not be hearing from David himself, but from the many people whose lives have been impacted by or have impacted the man that Sox owners called the greatest clutch hitter the team has ever had. Swinging a high deep drive in the right field, that one scored to the right. Hunter on the move, racing back, it's over his head, it's gone, it's in the bullpen, this game is tied, this game is tied, David Ortiz, David Ortiz, David Ortiz. In this edition, I'm interviewing Adrian Burgos, a professor of history at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Adrian brings a unique perspective to our ongoing series about David Ortiz. He specializes in U.S. Latino history and sports history. I spoke with Adrian about David Ortiz's place, not only in Red Sox history, but in a greater context of Latins in baseball. Welcome to our conversation. I'm speaking with uh, Adrian Burgos, Jr. In relation to uh, David Ortiz and, and the role that players from Ortiz's native Dominican Republic have played for the Red Sox. We don't see a player from the Dominican Republic uh, in a Red Sox uniform until 1974, uh, when Juan Marichal, who of course had uh, uh, had or was at the end of his Hall of Fame career, having pitched uh, for the San Francisco Giants, winds up in a, in a Red Sox uniform. Uh, and it really wasn't until the 90s uh, that you see the Red Sox signing uh, uh, prospects in any kind of significant numbers uh, from the Dominican. I mean, he had Mario Guerrero uh, in 74, Julio Valdez, uh, but they, those were the only two uh, from the Dominican until 1991. Um, tell us a little bit about what you know of the, of the Red Sox involvement in the Dominican and and why it seems uh, their involvement there was so long delayed. Well, and the reality is Major League Baseball's involvement in the Dominican was quite delayed. Um, and part of it was because of the bountiful number of players of, uh, in Cuba. And Major League Baseball relied heavily on Cuban baseball talent. And the first person, and there's the, the Marichal is the connection to the Sox and the Giants, but also Alex Bombez was the first guy to bring Dominican talent out of the DR into the Negro Leagues, and that was in 1926. And he becomes, when his team disbands from the Negro Leagues in 1950, the New York Giants baseball team hires him as their scout. And he hires his former shortstop, Horacio Martinez, to be the guy on the ground scouting in the Dominican Republic. And they're the ones who 
bring in Marichal, the Alou brothers, Manny Moda, and on and on. And you know, Adrian, if I if I may interrupt for a moment, it it's probably worth noting, and I'm not sure how many Red Sox fans know this, but uh, the man who runs Boston's Dominican Academy uh, on the island is Jesus Alou, one of the three uh, Alou brothers that that you allude to, Felipe and and Mateo being the other two. You know, and to, to me, what's really interesting is there is the connection between Boston, Senator Brooke, and, and Bonfez, like a number of their first Latino players to appear, not, not Latino, but Dominican players, to appear with, with the, um, well, Cuban and Puerto Rican, in fact, with the Red Sox were guys that originally made their appearance with the Giants. So, you know, Cepeda is another one of these guys. You know, Marichal, as you mentioned before. Um, and, and so it really isn't until the late 1970s that other major league teams, mainly the Toronto Blue Jays and the Los Angeles Dodgers, begin to really scout the Dominican Republic. And they set up baseball academies because still, right after Cuba's closed off as a talent source, they went to Puerto Rico, and you know that's the era of, of Clemente and and Cepeda and many other talented Puerto Rican players. But as Puerto Rico kind of became, you know, a heavily contested source of talent, they others turned to the Dominican Republic as a place. And the challenge that was there for all major league teams was how do they deal with cultural adjustment? that many of these major league Latino prospects in the 1970s and 1980s were failing to make the major league grade, not necessarily because of talent, but because they couldn't handle the cultural adjustment. And in this interview I did with Orlando Cepeda, I remember asking him, you know, when you got to minor league camp, were you the best guy there? You know, you know he has a heritage where his father was by many accounts, one of the greatest um, baseball players ever produced in Puerto Rico. So he has this lineage. And he's like, he might have been a bit modest. He's like, he said no. Huh. But there were other guys who were better than him. And then he starts pointing to his head. And he's like, but they couldn't handle it, you know, the adjustment. And it's really what many major league teams struggled with in the, in the 70s and 80s into the 90s is how do you bring in these very young Dominican prospects and help them with the cultural adjustment so that they can handle the off-the-field dynamics and, and the coaching dynamics to make it. You know, it's not about how hard, just about how hard you can throw. You know, yes, Adrian, how, about, how would you um, assess the efforts that major league teams are making now in terms of assimilating Latin players. Yeah. And this is where Ben Charrington and others in the, in the early two thousands really got smart about it because the efforts now are, are much more attentive to the question of cultural adjustment. You know, the, the Red Sox organization hired people to teach Spanish excuse me, teach English at their Spanish academies. You know, everything else basically is instructed in Spanish at the baseball academy, except for 
these cultural adjustment classes. And so, and they even created a curriculum and they hired bilingual coaches and individuals there at the academy, like, you know, Jesus Alou, so that, you know, Alou learned from his brothers and he learned from Alex Pompez and other Latinos in the Giants organization what it means to be, be not just a Latino, but in fact, a black Latino in America during a time of great segregation. And so now we fast forward into the 1990s and early 2000s, and it's very important to put together, in order to get a reputation as a good organization, put together a way of attending to cultural adjustment, because everyone is going to receive, every organization is going to give instruction on how to field, how to hit, better base running, but do they really try to prepare you for what you're going to find beyond the playing field and even in the locker room? You know, Adrian, uh, and I believe this is a story well known to you, is that when when David was released by the Twins uh, following the 2002 season, uh, he thought his career was over. Um, one of his former teammates, Corey Kosky, uh, recently uh, told me of, of, of going to David's wedding in that offseason and, and David breaking down in tears and, and crying about uh, what was going to happen to him. Um, so for him then to come to Boston and, and not only uh, continue his career, but morph into the big poppy, uh, how does that story resonate for you? Well, again, I think what's so kind of historically fascinating on that level, it's the Louis Piat story all over again. Because Piat was basically done. He was done. His arm had been shot. He had, you know, had gone nine and twenty one season, and and you know was shut down. And and the the Sox took a flyer on him. And even then, it didn't wasn't assured that he was going to make the team, that he was going to get a chance. And and he and he does, and he makes the most of it, and becomes a beloved figure because of the resiliency and the pride and, and really the exuding the love of baseball. And, you know, that's Big Poppy, the resiliency, the pride, the love of baseball. And, you know, as a Latino baseball fan, as a baseball historian, one of the things I truly enjoy about Big Poppy is he truly captures the love of La Vida baseball. You know, it's Caribbean Latinos celebrate baseball differently. And part of it is because we have such a long history of our own with the game. Uh, in my history lectures, I remind people that the Latinos, particularly Caribbean Latinos from Cuba, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, the coast of Venezuela, were the first migrant and immigrant people to the United States that came with baseball already as part of who we are. You know, the Italians couldn't say this. You know, the Germans couldn't say this. The Poles, the Slovaks, the Czechs, they, none of them can say this. But isn't that, Latin, Adrian, isn't that why it's important where you place the apostrophe, that it's not America apostrophe S game, but it's America's S apostrophe game? I, I think so, and I think that's when most, 
too many baseball fans in the United States, and in fact, some major league players lose sight of him. This is what Bud Norris, uh, with his statements at the end of the last season, totally did not understand. You know, America's game has been true for over well over a hundred years, and. What the other part about this, and we really saw this in Chicago recently with the passing of Minnie Minoso, Cubans like Jose Abreu and and Ramirez, the shortstop that used to be with the White Sox, who who defected from Cuba, still were growing up with reverence towards Minnie Minoso, and you know Cuba's basically been closed off as a society to the United States for fifty years, you know, but. They know who Minnie is. They understood, and actually it's more like 60 years, um, that, that they understood that history of baseball, and they followed it, and they followed Louis Tian in his journey into the major leagues, and they followed the other guys, and they took pride in it. And that is, again, a way of saying that the successes of uh, David Ortiz as Big Bobby in Boston is followed in the DR so closely, and it's so meaningful, particularly because he was let go by Minnesota. It was a redemption chance that he had totally taken advantage of. And so, to the point that after the Boston bombing, he is the face of resiliency that speaks for and to Boston about this will not break us. We are unbreakable. You know, you anticipated my question, I think, Adrian. I was going to to bring up the uh, the marathon bombing in the first game the Red Sox played after the bombing, which was really the first civic gathering of the, that Boston held in the aftermath of that bombing. And in a historical context, what does it mean to you as a historian that it was indeed David Ortiz from the Dominican Republic, who represented or, or, or spoke to the concerns of Boston and New England on that afternoon? You know, I, I, one of my friends, Tim Wendell, wrote a book a while back called uh, The New Face of Baseball um, and, and talking about Latinos in baseball. And you know, I think what we saw that day is not just about baseball, but about immigration, what it means to Boston and America. You know, those of us who don't live in Boston are often unaware about, you know, when you go to Chelsea, you're going to run into a lot of Dominicans and a lot of Latinos there. It is a section of Boston that has been Latinized, and it has added flavor to the long history of immigration to Boston. And... So it really makes sense that it would be an immigrant who becomes a native son because of the blood, the sweat, the tears, the camaraderie that emerges out of that Bostonian love affair with the Sox. And I say this, you know, as a Yankee fan, fully aware of how much the Red Sox mean to my, many of my own academic friends who are <laughs> New Englanders. And, you know, I can, I'm also a historian, so I can flip my, my hat very quickly and say that, you know, the, the, the Red Sox have done a really terrific job in 
seeking to take not just advantage of, in a negative sense, of the talent out of, out of the Dominican Republic, but to see an opportunity there and actually approach it in a very uh, in a more humane way than others did in the past. Uh, I'll put it that way. And that is by attending to the questions of cultural adjustment, to be, as an organization, hiring individuals to help the Dominican players face what came before them, and then also really allowing guys like Manny and Pedro and Big Papi to become part of the face and the heart of the team, you know, and in very different ways because Manny is not Big Papi, is not Pedro, and they're both three, I think, kind of iconoclastic symbols of what the Red Sox became in the in the 2000s and and the successes into the early 2010s. Adrian, it 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 seems to be an open and shut case uh, among Red Sox fans that that Ted Williams is the greatest player in team history. But I wonder if the argument can be made, uh, particularly given the fact that David Ortiz wears three World Series rings and has a chance to join Harry Hooper as the only player in Sox history to have four World Series rings. I wonder how strong a case can be made that David Ortiz may be the most important player in Red Sox history. You know, I think that what we can say is he is the most important player in Red Sox history since integration because he embodies so much of a departure from what the you know what the Red Sox organization was and under you know under the Yaki family to what they are today. And you know it's fascinating again through a historical lens, the shift in ownership, how you know, and even management with Dan Duquette, the the embracing of Latinos and Latin America and the staying with it. So, you know, we do have Nomar uh, Garcia Parra, Mexican-American player in the 1990s. And, you know, Nomar really begins this kind of different flavor of, the, of who the Sox leaders can be. And then Pedro, of course, you know, tra- is a transformative figure. He is, you know, the Colfax of our time and in many ways, you know, those people in the 1950s might hate me for this, but he becomes greater than Colfax. Yeah. You know, and the parallel between Pedro and Colfax is it becomes so important to their community, you know, for the Jewish community and for the Dominican community and for the Latina community writ large about, you know, who they are. And I think one of the really powerful parts about this is Pedro becomes unafraid of sharing his thoughts about doing right. And, and so Pedro Martinez, in many ways, in, in takes on the mantle of Felipe Alou, uh, being a spokesperson for the Latinos. And I think, you know, Big Papi has similarly now kind of want take on that responsibility of speaking not just for himself, but for other Latino players, you know, now that, that Pedro has been retired and rightly 
honored in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, Adrian Burgos, professor of history at the University of Illinois, uh, we thank you so much for illuminating a very important part of the Red Sox past as well as their present. And in terms of the future, consider yourself invited when inevitably the Red Sox will be unveiling a statue of David Ortiz, Pedro Martinez, both together, separate. That day, I, I suspect, will be coming. You've been great. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.